fingers crossed we don't get bombarded. Just, just let them at the the, the drinks counter. Oh yeah, let them have that's a, the plan. That's what a little short. Oh, I, I just for, I know well, I didn't for, even I just took out all the alcohol bottles and left them positioned on the on the. <laughs> Help oh yourselves. yeah, it's just I felt weird. Put a, put a helmet on them and uh, and like uh, BMX bike elbow pads and give <laughs> them a bottle of vodka and a bag of jelly beans. Oh, See what childhood in nineties eighties, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. (gasps) What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits. A movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host, Will. Do <laughs> you know what happened there? My phone interrupted me. My fucking phone interrupted me. Oh, You're God. such a professional. Oh my God, my phone interrupted me. I'm and so he's sorry. joined once again by his co-host of One and a Bit Films and Three and a Bit Episodes of TV, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you getting on? I'm Grand Will. How are you? I'm, 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 I'm amazed. But Kevin, hey. It's not just us this week. Because I got the wow. best hand-drawn or 2D animated scene, I felt it ki- I kind of was... Fixed. Uh, a li- well, listen, there's uh, <laughs> a, a... What's the word? <clears throat> a, a, a Look, just people looking into it, and um, my lawyers know all about the situation. So, um, but I, I saw w- that wheel. There was just one category going <laughs> around and around and around. It was just blue. <laughs> a constant blue. <laughs> But I'm delighted to introduce our very special co-host and guest this week, director of three Anabase animated features. Not only that, but he's also a producer, a writer, and co-owner of one of the best animation studios in the world, Tom DeBomb Moore. Tom. <laughs> Definitely one of the two best studios in the parish. <laughs> Don't in there. Tom DeBomb. That's going to be your uh, official uh, credit uh, in the uh, yeah. show notes. <laughs> yeah, Tom DeBomb. Yeah, it's a little bit like my old, uh, my old secondary school nickname, Ace. They used to call me Ace. No, no way. <laughs> I just like no, they didn't. Oh, all right. I just like oh I just God. like to pretend my my nickname was Ace. It's, I was to, to be I was fair. Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Ace does sound like one of those self self uh, yeah, titles. Yeah, it's a very self applied. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, I'm not I'm not I'm not William anymore. I'm I'm Slash. I'm scared. And, uh, Jason Ironblood. Yeah. Kevin, did you have any nicknames growing up? No, as I said, uh, but on Grabbers, I got the nickname Langers. Ah. And that was just uh, what everybody started calling me. They didn't even know what my first name was. It was like, where's Langers? He's over there. Oh. I was like, I'm not going to respond to this anymore. You guys oh. don't know what you're saying. I was so entertained in biology class. I used to make up little characters in my in my copy books. And after Edward Scissorhands came out, we were studying about the islets of Langerhans in the in the human body. And so I created a little cork based Edward Scissorhands parody with Langerhans. <laughs> oh, brilliant! I love that, and I think I think you should go to Disney and uh, pictures. Yeah, and uh, the I th- islands of Langerhans. Gosh. 
You've sure been busy helping me and my pals. The reason we have time in, as I've already said, is because I got best 2D uh, hand-drawn animated scene. And um, it's one of those uh, topics that is very, very broad. It's kind of like when I got mm-hmm. best World War II scene, I was like going, Christ, how do you tackle this? And I think mm. there's no way of kind of getting into it and try uh, without coming across as another film history or uh, TED Talk episode. And I think you kind of have to go at very subjectively. Or that's how I... This is, this is what Will says when he's not done any research. Shut up, Kevin. <laughs> well, it's worth, it's, worth, it's worth saying, though, that animation and even hand-drawn animation is such a broad... It's like saying the best film. Exactly. Because it's a medium in itself. Like, there's no... It's not a genre, so it's very hard. It doesn't narrow it it's down Jaws. a lot. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. <laughs> but yeah, that's the first. I, I did say, I said, can we just like qualify this some way and say best whatever, uh, whatever genre film. Um, but no, I was outvoted in this um, oh, hot yeah. bot and Kevin voted against me and said, no, we're going with best <laughs> hand-drawn animated movie. Um, yeah. But really, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to forego the fact that I didn't do any research for this. Uh, and uh, I'm going to lean into Tom Moore. That's my plan. <laughs> And I want to know all about Tom Moore. You're going to lean more into Tom Moore. I'm going to lean more into Tom Moore's experience and his career and figure Just out. Piggybacking on my nerdiness <laughs> all the way to the Oscars. Well, it's worked for me so far. Uh, I give up now. Um, Hi, Tom. I'm a writer as well. You know, I'm available. <laughs> who's, who, Will, Will, uh, who's this? There's somebody else. Uh, what's this? I thought it was just you and me. Um, can, we, can we get him removed? Does it, hang on a second. I can't. Podbot. <laughs> no, everyone's <laughs> ganging up on me. Fuck this. Oh, sorry, Kevin. Sorry. Can I ask you a, a sort of a, a very um, basic question, but it's one that... Uh, you know, when I think about myself and the films that sort of inspired me, I'm wondering what was the first animated film for you that you sort of were enchanted by or or fascinated by set you off on this path? Because I assume there has to be one that um, or a few that did that. Yeah, that was something that came to mind fairly quickly when Will was saying it to me last week when I was in the house because like I remember going to Snow White and being afraid of the witch and my dad telling me that I could just look at the projector and in the projector, you could see her, but she was much smaller. So I could kind of handle her in the yeah. projector. So when the queen wow. or the witch came on, I just looked at her small and then looked back at Snow White. That's a powerful memory because I still can use that trick to this day. Whenever I'm a bit too scared, I can look up. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a little bit easier to handle. Oh, I also really remember going to see a re-release of the Aristocats, I think, but they're vague, vague memories. And you know the way sometimes they're a memory of a memory that you were told you remember, you know, like, so the one that made a big, big impression on me was at a birthday party when I was a kid. And I guess it was around maybe 87, 88. And I was a bit too old and I was with the older boys and the, the fella that was his birthday had Sorry, a little sister. I'm still not sure about that. Siri's talking to me. Fuck off, Podbot. It's Podbot's evil twin yeah. sister. It's, it's a pod. It's Siri on my watch, my Apple watch. But what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So they put on a, a cartoon for the little girls. And I ended up sitting down in Transpite. It was a secret of name. Transpite. 
and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. Which I looked at a bit of again earlier. And the one that really, bit that really stuck out in my mind, and I still remember that weird feeling where I was a bit uncomfortable by how visceral it was, but it was so amazing, was the great owl in The Secret of Nim when Mrs. Brisby goes down into that cobwebby, dark kind of tree. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Well, the place looks deserted. I guess we better get out of here. Step inside my house. And then the owl is there and he, he's eating moths as he's talking to her. And he's kind of threatening and amazing and beautifully done. And they did these glowy eyes that they would have had a, a little bit of transparency in, in, this, in a cell with a gel. And they would have put a camera, a light behind the the cell and it would, it would shine through it and give these glowing eyes which you know pre-CGI was incredible like a little extra you know his eyes were kind of flashing and glowing as he spoke and all so it really stuck out in my head and uh, I remember turning around and some of my friends who were I suppose we were eight or nine they were looking in going haha he's watching cartoons and I didn't care I was way more interested in the cartoons or whatever they were up to so. that's amazing so hold on a second yeah. so that was no first of all that scene right that's a spooky. Mm. That's a that's a spooky film. That's that's from oh, the yeah. stable of the nineteen eighties. Hang on a second. Is was yeah. this is this a bit questionable too for kids? Questionable for kids sort yeah. of film. And it came yeah. out in nineteen eighty two. I'm pretty sure. And well done. Yeah, the, but I had no idea of its existence wow. until VHS. You know what I mean. So it was yeah. many years later. I would when it came out in eighty two. I would have been like four years old. So yeah. definitely the wrong age for it. And maybe a bit old for it. And I saw it at nine or ten or whatever I was in eighty seven, eighty eight. But definitely it shaped. I've talked to you about this before, Will. It shaped my idea of what an animated feature could be in terms of tone. Yeah. And um, that's quite different than the prevailing trend of kind of glitter and and humor and dago colors. Yeah. Back then there was real like real kind of mystic kind of darkness like Dark Crystal and yeah. Jim Henson yeah, yeah. movies and Secret of Name The Black Cauldron almost Watership forgotten Down. but Watership <laughs> Down yeah those were the movies I grew up on and they made a big impression on me and they definitely had a lot of heft to them in terms of tone and yeah they were heavy and shadowy and, and kind of interesting you know we came out in that era that's the era we came out in and there was just the kind of the shackles, there was just darker stories being told in, in that decade, which was kind of different to stuff that came out in the preceding decades, which is really unusual. But yeah. um, I also, the this is what, now there's a serendipity to this. First of all, there's two things I want, the two threads I want to pull on that. First of all, the owl, which is like, you know, <laughs> do you think do you think that owl then became an influence in Song of the Sea oh, and yeah, in Song of the Sea? Of course. Yeah, sure. I mean, like the big influences in my life, I suppose, were more things like the Ghibli films and Richard Williams work. That was the stuff I was conscious of as a student. Yeah. But that primal, childish, you know, sort of engrossed in something and, and classical animation, 
I hadn't like when I talk about the Aristocats or the Robin Hood or any of those, mm. they weren't as lush and luxurious as Secret and Nim. Maybe Pinocchio and Snow White were the closest things I'd seen to that, but it was so immersive yeah. and so spooky and scary. And you were down in the world. What I loved about it was the scale of it. Yeah. A lot of Bluth's early movies played with scale a lot. You were everything looked like mad and different because you were down so small. And so definitely, yeah, there's when I was watching it again this morning to remind myself, I was thinking, oh yeah, that definitely crept into Maka, oh, right, the Owl Witch. Yeah. Right. The Owl Witch? From the stories? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Those stories always paint me as the bad one. But I'm not so terrible, you know. I'm just trying to help everyone. And then there's yeah. a mad thing because people listening might know, um, might know who Don Bluth was, who oh, he directed right. it. He directed so Don Bluth was a a Disney guy, isn't that right? He was an American yeah. Yeah. Um, animator from the Disney studio. Um, yeah. But he came over to Ireland. When did he come over to Ireland? So I think he came to Ireland 86 or 87. And I had no idea that when I saw Secret and Name that that was Don Bluth. I was too young to make that connection, you know. But I remember the Don Bluth studio coming to Ireland because in Kilkenny Castle, they screened um, an American tale and the land before time. And they invited, I can't remember how I ended up there. Maybe Which he also directed, I suppose. Yeah, Don Bluth. The Don Bluth studio made uh, a few really cracker dark kids movies like that early on mm-hmm. and they moved over around the time they were making I think American Tale with Steven Spielberg and they had people dressed up as the characters and there was a certain amount of excitement I don't know why for me the idea that this studio was in Kilkenny or was in Ireland mm. in Dublin I mean I was down in Kilkenny and then in Kilkenny Castle they had the characters dressed up and went in it felt like oh like Disney's coming here or something like Disneyland was gonna and there was all sorts of stuff like neighbours would have a friend of a friend who was working in the studio and there was big it was big news that he had a studio in Dublin so I think that was part of what made me feel it might be possible to be an animator in Ireland you know that's amazing you see that's amazing like that's the germ of that, like in the Ireland I grew up in, it was like Harlan or yeah. priesthood or, yeah. you know, <laughs> get yeah. a job in the bank. And it was zero. Like, I remember hearing about fairy forts, s- fairy forts, <laughs> yeah, going up the fields and that's it. Like, you know, and hopefully they'll transport you someplace else. But there was, um, I remember hearing stuff about like, you know, uh, oh, you see that fellow over there. He uh, he operates a camera at GA matches for RT and I thought wow I remember going wow people can get into the industry or there's a job in this stuff like you know and I thought that was like magic like you know so that's as close as I ever got to it like when I was young but like to hear I think as a kind of like switching on a germ of um, possibility I think mm. seeing that seeing those icons like in your mm. town and hearing mm. about people possibly working mm. and making that stuff do you think that like really was like a kind of a kickstart in your brain or as a smaller child, yeah, because I really loved animation. I remember there was a, a movie program called Lights, Camera, Action. Uh-huh. Yeah, brought it up, season one. Hello, and welcome to Stand By, Lights, Camera, Action. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leonard yeah. Nimoy, I think, was like Spock, yeah, and I loved Star right, Trek yeah. too. So Leonard Nimoy was presenting it. And they, I guess RT showed an episode around the time it was in the news that Don Bluth was coming in. The animator behind The Secret of Nim is Don Bluth. Don worked for the Walt Disney Studio for almost 10 years. Then he and two partners set up shop in Don's garage. They were joined by 14 other Disney artists, all wanting to bring back classical animation techniques. Let's hear all about The Secret of Nim. And um, 
And I'd seen him on the Late Late Show. My parents had got me out of bed to see him on the Late Late Show and he was drawing the characters from All Dogs Go to Heaven. And then this older Lights Camera action was about the making of Secret of Nim. So I put yeah. it together. I went, oh, that's the same guy. That's that cartoon. Wow. And we didn't yeah, yeah. even have a VHS player at the time. So I remember the excitement of anything about animation coming on was based on the RTE guidance sitting up the TV early enough to watch it, you know. Yeah. And um, I made a connection with him then. And then I remember getting an idea that you made animation with like acetate cells on top of painted backgrounds. Yeah. And I remember begging my dad for them because he had like an overhead projector as part of his work as an engineer. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me, I had to wash the car on Saturdays to get this box of acetate cells. And I tried to make my own cartoon without a camera. I just had the backgrounds and the cells painted. Wow. Um, I had, yeah, so as a small kid, I was all about that. I Yeah, it's just as you're saying that, I'm just wondering... It, it, were you interested in animated films because you could draw or yes. did animated films inspire you to draw? Like what's the yeah. chicken and the egg there? That's really hard to know. Like the earliest known photo of my artwork, I'm three years old and I've drawn a, a dog for Popeye on a blackboard. And my parents think I'm terribly, it's not a terribly <laughs> great drawing of a dog, but my parents were doting and they yeah. decided they'd record it for posterity. So like, somehow both were entangled for me. I loved drawing yeah. and I definitely was attracted to animation as a career because I wanted to do something that allowed me to draw a lot. Um, and I def- they were definitely intertwined. And I was talking to Will there last week about this, that, you know, possibly it's great that people like Wes Anderson and so forth, Garth Jennings are coming into animation who aren't first and foremost animation artists because they bring something else to the medium. But definitely in those year days, like Don Bluth was the, the great drawer, like the really good animator of the Disney studio who broke away. And there was a kind of a cult around, you know, being a really good artist to be an animator. So they were very mixed up in my head, much more than being a filmmaker. I was older before I even thought of it as filmmaking. You know, It was in the same category in my head as like the characters on the cereal boxes and the comics and stuff that I'd read, you know. I think that the art of animation is a very valuable heritage that's been given to the whole world and that it actually enriches the lives of all the people all over the world, as it did mine when I was a child. And to see that lost, to see that even diminished, is a great loss. And um, I think it's, it's worth defending, it's worth fighting for, it's worth keeping alive until there's someone else besides myself or all the other people that love animation so dearly can take a hold of it and make it grow more. And I, for one, am am very, very thankful that there was a guy named Walt Disney, you know, and that he did want it to work like this. It helped my life. And what I'm hoping is that the films that we can make here will help some other people, too. Was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles rendered in Ireland? Oh, yeah, it was animated here, too. Yeah, with Jimmy Murakami's studio. Like an urban legend that all those kids used to share is that... (laughs) You know, that show was actually made in Ireland. We're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was in the credits. I remember watching that. I was a bit older and I loved Batman, the animated series. And they used to play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Hero Warrior Turtles just before it. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, so I'd end up catching the end of it. And I knew it was made in the Jimmy Murakami studio in Dublin. But I was older then and a bit. I was in like first year of secondary school when that kind of happened. So you were just I was 11 or 12. Yeah. And it was the animation was, I remember distinctly, it was a little bit rougher. The Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. Side by side, even as a youngster, I knew the difference oh, yeah. between Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. You know, oh, this is a little bit 
that Batman was animated class. Batman show is still the best iteration of Batman. It's amazing uh, for me. It's amazing. Yeah, I love the Teenage Turtles. I had friends who were certain that there were subtle differences between them. And when we got to college, one of our teachers had worked on it and he went, no, they're all the exact same design. We just painted the masks different colors. <laughs> oh my God. Oh different my God. shades of green. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kevin, I want to throw it out to you just a second. Did you do you have um, did you have a, like any kind of uh, foundational or fundamental animated film that you loved growing up, or was the one that you remember as a kid? Um, it was all TV stuff. It used to be the Tom and Jerry cartoons. I would go around mm-hmm. to my granddad's house and he would have uh, the volumes on cassette tape, and mm-hmm. I would just watch all those. The the which I suppose they were re- released theatrically in the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones where he's playing the piano and the one where they freeze the kitchen and they were, you know, excellent. They were class, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I watched them more recently a couple of years back, and they still hold up until you get to the fifties or sixties, where mm-hmm. there's a changeover in, I, I think, the creators of of the the, the shorts. But those were excellent. But yeah, I loved Fantasia. What you're going to see are the designs and pictures and stories, music inspired in the minds and imaginations of a group of artists. I thought that was oh, yeah. magical oh. to watch. Quite highbrow. It didn't feel like it was trying to make me laugh. It just felt like it was trying to take me someplace else. It was like really... Mm. Oh, it's gorgeous, sort of yeah. Transportive and... and a trip. Yeah, just a... And and in, along that line of thought, for me, when I was trying to think of what I could mention on this podcast, I was going back to Akira. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Because for me, Akira was like, if you tried to make that movie as a live action, it would be four or five hundred million to pull off because mm. of the scale and the the set pieces and because it's not trying to um, it, it just felt like a very adult cartoon uh, yeah. I don't oh, know yeah. if that's a dirty word saying the word cartoon <laughs> I was sort of coming into this thinking is anime a dirty word is, is cartoon a dirty word God, cartoon wouldn't want to be a dirty word it's the name of our studio cartoon well, saloon I suppose <laughs> but I think we like to reclaim it I think we like to use it as a you no know, but I don't think it should be a dirty word I like cartoony cartoons and it's ironic that our studio has made so many kind of earnest you know features whenever the name implies but a, a little bit of like a animation nerd fact for you about the yeah. Hanna Barbera, the guys who did those original Tom and Jerry's, which of course were for adults. They were playing in front of, you know, Casablanca or whatever. Yeah. You know, they were yeah. they were part of that. And when they they broke away and it was almost them, even though they'd been doing these beautiful, fully animated, absolute, you know, and nothing we didn't see anything like it again till Roger Rabbit really does full nineteen forties animation. They were the people that made all those cartoons we would have seen as kids like Yogi Bear and mm. you know Dick Dastardly and all that limited animation, very simple animation, because they tried to adapt for the TV. You know, they set up their own company for the TV. And so it's quite interesting to see that those guys were the absolute pinnacle of they won Oscars and stuff for the the animated short category it used to be for your Mickey Mouses or your Bugs Bunnies or your Tom and Jerry's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they would have been big, big shots back then. 
and then they became kind of the kings of TV animation. But definitely, I think the idea that animation is for kids or that cartoon might be a dirty word, I think comes from that 80s time when a lot of Western animation became really just to sell toys. You know, like every show yeah. was uh, an ad for toys. And yeah. they look back kind of with nostalgia, but they were pretty cynically made. And I think animation was in the doldrums. And and took Don Bluth kind of whatever you say about him as a character, and I didn't know him personally, and I've heard all sorts of stories, but it took him saying, No, we can we can do stuff at the quality of the 1940s, we can do classical animation, and we should. And Spielberg kind of seeing the secret in him and backing him. That's kind of what brought animation back. Like part of the animation renaissance, even in Disney, was the fact that Bluth broke away and was doing this virtuoso stuff in Dublin, you know? And kind of in terms of Western animation. Yeah. Yeah. Because like and then it was on the other side, you know, Disney were doing that and plowing that furrow of musical fairy tales. And at the same time, those of us in the 90s who saw something like Akira and kind of were opening our eyes to Japanese manga and Japanese yeah. anime. And we started to see, wow, look at what Ghibli have been doing. And, you mm-hmm. know, look at this kind of whole industry and culture that respects animation as a as a medium, not a genre. And so yeah. those two things, I think, really collided into the the world situation we have now where animation is such a big part of the industry, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. And you were talking about, yeah, because I suppose Akira was the one that broke into mainstream. It was the one that, yeah, uh, that like I, I, from my point of view, um, my experience was that I thought it was kind of like the first adult and I didn't know <laughs> there was a whole industry because we were just, because yeah. we are, I was the only, I saw it when I was a teenager and it was yeah, sort me of too, to yeah. me as like, this is a, a badass car- badass animated film and yeah. um and it was said sincerely and i watched it and i thought oh i get it uh, just mm. immediately like the the tone that it set where it was just it, it it wasn't afraid to have moments of complete silence it was just creating this atmosphere of absence uh in the audio and beautifully drawn i remember with my my bare knowledge of what it took to make some animation from having done my own experiments and stuff, being blown away by like whole crowds being animated and explosions. And then, you know, I remember really noticing like a character trying to light a cigarette in the background. And I was like, wow, like in a Disney movie, that would be the focus of the scene. But it was just a bit of throwaway character animation in the background. The scene was focusing on Tetsu or something. And so I really remember like Japanese animation at the time. And it kind of crashed into, on VHS tape, it crashed into us in the 90s. I would have been 13 or 14 by the time I think I saw Akira. And I was already a young Irish filmmaker. And there were some guys in filmmakers who were in film school. And so they were really kind of highbrow about animation when I talked to them about it. And they would get us VHS tapes of... There was quite a few. We saw Legend of the Overfiend, and we saw a lot of pretty hardcore Japanese animation. Before I discovered Ghibli, I thought Japanese animation was all like <laughs> monsters and explosions and tentacles and things. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I love a good tentacle. And I want to bring up another thing, Tom, because uh, Kevin, you might notice, but and our listeners might notice. But another um, thing that I always think is amazing in your story is is the the again the serendipity of this group yeah. that, happened, that sprung up in Kilkenny called the Young Irish Filmmakers, and could you kind of explain to Kevin very well, briefly and our listeners? Oh, I know this. What, you know about them, do you? No, I what don't. The, <laughs> no, you don't. What, what, so I think it's, there you go. I think it was you were in such a unique time and yeah. place 
to have that experience. What was it? So many aspects of my story when I look back on it, I just took for granted because I was a kid and you just accept what's around you. And I yeah. basically joined Young Irish Filmmakers, I think mostly to meet girls, you know, because there was girls up there and you went to an all-boys school. But it was a group, it was like a youth club after school and if you weren't into hurling and you weren't into other stuff, this guy called Mike Kelly, he'd been a theatre director and he worked in TV in Australia and he'd set it up as a kind of yeah, like basically a, a training ground for teenagers. And at the time, before smartphones and stuff, just getting your hands on a camera and an editing suite and being able to do stuff was massively empowering, you know. And we tried to make uh, our own films and we made a feature film right. based on Under the Hawthorn Tree. And Mike had have a, friends like Mike. And- How old were you when you did this? You made a feature film? Yeah, but I didn't. I mean, I was like a oh, production the, designer on it, but okay. the group made it. Yeah, I think the director was Brona Murphy. It was like a flower shop in Dublin now. But there was a group of us in Kilkenny making stuff, and some of it were feature films. Every summer they'd made a feature film, and then the rest of the time was wow. just mucking around on Saturdays, you know. And so that was a kind of live action for me. Like, Mike would show movies and talk to us about uh movies i remember watching highlander to learn about match cuts and lore and stuff and i remember mike had a friend called michael adelson who was a a set photographer in movie sets and also a professor of film in new york in new york university i think i think he's still alive michael and michael adelson would come over and give like all these spotty Kilkenny teenagers proper full-on film history lessons you know and because he knew that myself and Ross and a few of us were into animation he did a day on um kind of like um subtext something that blew my mind like I was watching cartoons and loving them on one level and he did a day on like how Roger Rabbit was speaking to racism yeah. in Hollywood and how Toontown was kind of a stand in oh, for Coontown yeah. and how did yeah. the, they were seen as like ent- disposable entertainment yeah. and all this kind of stuff to black people. And it was a whole other level. It blew my mind. You are blowing my mind because I did not even read that into the film. That I've seen that film so many times. Uh-huh. And there's a bit where Donald Duck says the N-word. Like, Donald Duck calls Daffy really? Duck the N-word. Yeah. No if you way. listen carefully, they're playing piano, and he goes, low down, southern N-word. That's what he no calls Daffy. Way. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of wife quackers, but you are despicable. Holy shit. Jesus. And so I was like 15 or 16, and I loved Roger Rabbit and was... You know, like everyone had this weird feeling in my in my boxer shorts when Jessica Rabbit came on. I was like, this is a cartoon. What am I feeling here? But um, and I remember watching that. They knew exactly like, what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that was the start of my I was very I didn't realize how influenced I'd been by Richard Williams, who, like Don Bluth, was another one of these guys who saw the animation was falling into the doldrums and becoming kind of cheap entertainment on Saturday mornings for kids and had highbrow ideas for it. And Roger Rabbit was just a job to pay the bills for him because he was making his own art films and stuff and lots of commercials. But I kind of digress. Yeah, Young Irish Filmmakers at the time was, yeah, it was eye-opening. I never went to film school and I was never really a film buff, but there was other people around me there who were and who were really into it. And people like Michael Adelson and Mike Kelly giving us those kind of lectures, like whether it was, he'd do Buster Keaton and he did a whole day on Buster Keaton. I really remember talking all about Silent and stuff that was really good for animation. That's better about how those, school. It really is. Yeah, how those guys would do like telegraphing what they were going to do because it was in black and white and they were wearing white gloves and you could kind of see where he was putting his hand before he put his hand in his pocket and taking out oh. the keys. So it was all like staging, like really good quality 
staging for film looking at silent movies and then also the theory we watched um beauty and the beast which had just come out in cinemas yeah. and uh or maybe it was just out in vhs or we wouldn't have been able to show it to us so we watched beauty and the beast and we watched the company of wolves and we watched the belle of the bet <laughs> all in one wow. day and he was just talking about you know the subtext of fairy tales across all these movies so it was really amazing yeah it was a really amazing opportunity yeah what a gift to all of ye and it kind of like and that's what i think what's so special about your um your that experience that you had you, know, you the idea that films also was a, a community endeavor that it's like no one person you know yeah. makes a film oh which god is yeah maybe that i got in got instilled in me because the oh my only portals into the film world were empire magazine or whatever yeah. dave Fanning. and the, the thinking kind of the, a director does everything Thinking director of it, the or the actors. Like, you know, when you're really young and you just yeah. you don't even think about behind the camera. You just go, I want to be the guy I can see. Like you think he's making yeah. it, whether it's Harrison yeah. Ford or whoever. Yeah. It sounds daft, but I must have been twelve or thirteen and I still didn't know that there were other jobs you could do other than act in it or direct mm. it. Mm. Yeah. And it sort of was this epiphany for me where I thought, Oh, I can write this stuff. Mm. Yeah. I used to read the credits and uh, see stuff like Gaffer and Best Boy and stuff and go, what are they? But I remember, I really remember seeing art director and I was in secondary school and it was like in my head, oh, maybe I'd like to be an art director. You know, it just seemed like something I might like to do. But because we had, yeah, because we filmmakers, we actually got a chance to do those things. Most of the time I was on clapperboard or something boring, but I was around the set and we were getting up at six o'clock in the morning and meeting up on a Saturday and there was camaraderie, you know, there was a sense that, Together, we could do something bigger than any one of us could do. And I'd been mucking around trying to make cartoons on my own at home. And Ross, when I met him in secondary school, he was doing the same thing. And we were like kind of stuck. Like the most we could do was whatever like the Amiga could do. But when we went into filmmakers, we were looking for the kit and equipment and maybe to meet girls. But actually, we kind of learned about working together as a Here team. girls, have a look at my flick book of uh, Jessica Rabbit drawings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I, I marry her in this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did meet a producer once in, in London that gave a talk to um, a, a collective that I was part of when I first arrived in, in London, which was called The Viper's Nest. And that producer <laughs> said to us, um, find your tribe and stick with them and mm-hmm. you'll come up together. And mm-hmm. that was his... Um, that was his advice for success. It was not Brilliant to do advice, it alone. Yeah. Find your tribe, stick with them, rise and fall with them. But mm. that's how you will uh, survive and succeed. Yeah, I never found my tribe. <laughs> I don't know. It's worth. It's. I mean, maybe you can find it virtually these days. You know, maybe people can. I often think kids who are online, like we were on the very early days of the internet back then. But what we had was just exactly that. And like Ross Stewart who was a friend of mine from school and young Irish filmmakers. We co-directed Wolfwalkers together. He was the art director of Secret of Kells. And quite a few of us from that time. That's kismet, though. Yeah. Kismet. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah, what is kismet? It's, it's like serendipity. It's just good fortune. Mm. Ah. You were talking, you brought up um, uh, Roger Rabbit. And Roger Rabbit, for me, was another, was a big one where I just went. Uh, when I saw that, there was a clear... I remember mm. something going off in my head as well, yeah. aside from the feeling in my in my boxer shirt. Um, <laughs> but it, there was a, 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 a certain feeling <laughs> of quality. This is yeah. the thing. It's like, it's like, 
I haven't seen something like this before. Yeah. And I kind of, I would watch the opening short. I loved watching the opening animated short. Well, the way he come close to the camera and away again. And the fact, the fact was that that's what Dick Williams had been making a kind of a, um, a living out of being able to do all those kind of things pre-computer animation. He could animate in perspective and he had trained the team using the old guys. Like there was guys who'd been blacklisted after the Disney strike who were working in crappy TV animation like Art Babbitt and Ken Harris. And he'd bring them over to his studio in London and was secretly kind of training the next generation from these kind of blacklisted ex-Disney and Warner Brothers animators, you know. So he was a, a he kind of kept a light lit. And I think Roger Rabbit was the film that he was probably most noticed for. But he had done so many things that had influenced me that I didn't realize before I knew who he was. You know, the opening credits to The Pink Panther... You know, it was really yes. cla- the class. Of, I used to watch it. As a it kid, go, I used to love yeah. that more than the film. Exactly. I'd be like, oh, yeah. no, Peter Sellers. I wanted to see more <laughs> yeah. of the cartoon. Keep you know? the cartoon going. <laughs> and, um, and so many commercials that we, yeah, that was him. So wow. many commercials that we would have grown up on that were really, not as nicely animated commercials in the 80s. Yeah. And they'd be in between kind of badly animated cartoons. The, There'd be these yeah. like well animated commercials. We did the yeah. Caramel Bunny. Yeah, I think that was Dick Williams' studio. No Might have been. Way. He had oh a way my. with those sexy drawings. <laughs> yeah, he really did. You know, you ought to relax a while. Here, see how the thick Cadbury's milk chocolate melts into the dreamy caramel. I love birthdays, don't you? But uh, yeah, he was an amazing guy. And I only discovered who he was later in, in college. And I think that was the biggest turning point for me because... I was only in college really to get good at drawing so I could make comics because yeah. I'd been to the Don Bluth studio and I'd seen what a kind of intensive process it was. And I'd kind of gotten addicted to being able to tell my own stories and tell different kinds of stories in young Irish filmmakers. Yeah. And I was a bit disillusioned by the Don Bluth studio because they were kind of in the doldrums by then. They were kind of going downhill and the people yeah. I met in there weren't terribly happy. So mm. it wasn't the Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory we were expecting. And we came out a bit disillusioned and we said, ah, let's do comics because we can. And at the time, comics were going through this really cool period where there was like Alan Moore and Frank Miller and they were telling really gritty stories. And so I was kind of going, yeah, maybe we'll just go to animation school to be really good at drawing and then we'll make our own comedy, make our own film, our own stories that way. But it was when I saw a documentary on a tape that I took home from college about Dick Williams and about how he'd been trying to make The Thief and the Cobbler. And he was so passionate and I realized, wow, he kind of talks about how animation could be an art form. And he says, hand-drawn animation hasn't done Rembrandt yet, but it could. And as an idealistic guy in my late teens, early 20s, that, that was really the thing that said. So I kind of say that the owl in The Secret of Nim and then seeing the, the rough, unfinished version of The Thief and the Cobbler and the documentary afterwards about Dick Williams trying to get hand-drawn animation back to the level or, or even av- ahead of the level it had been back in the 40s. That's what really kind of lit my fire, you know. Is The Thief and the Cobbler that amazing sequence that's floating around online um, that feels a little bit like Aladdin? Yeah, well, Aladdin is a total rip-off of The Thief and the Cobbler. This is really right. insider animation geek stuff now because what happened was, right, he had been trying to make that for 25 years on the back of commercials and the credits for the Pink Panther or whatever he was doing. And he was trying to show that hand-drawn animation could do something 
that had never been even attempted in Disney. He was going to the next level, you know, and um, he was kind of laboring away and putting all the money he was making out of commercials into this dream project. And um, the guys in ILM got a copy of a part of it. It was completely unfinished, but a part of it was finished. And it was this sequence in a war machine. camera was constantly moving and this is pre-computer animation so even just stuff moving in perspective was mind-blowing but it was all beautifully animated beautifully designed based on Persian miniatures and all the guys like Den Dennis Murren and uh, you know all the guys in, in uh, ILM they were like what the hell is this they were blown away by it and it became kind of legendary amongst you know those type of people people like Phil Tippett and yeah. You know, like the animation people in ILM. And yeah. so then whenever Zemeckis... Dinosaur Wranglers. Dinosaur Wranglers, <laughs> yeah. And so the legend, the legend was that Spielberg was looking for someone to, to work with Zemeckis on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And they were basically saying there was nobody left, really, who could do stuff to that level. And uh, then they, they looked at that sequence from The Thief and the Cobbler that Richard Williams had been working on for so long. And they were like, let's get in touch with this guy. And so that's how he ended up being the animation director for Roger Rabbit. And on the back of Roger Rabbit, he was hoping to get the money to make uh, The Thief and the Cobbler. And there's definitely a shared DNA in Aladdin. You can tell it. They're both based on the Persian, you know, Arabian Nights tales. Yeah. And there's definitely some pretty close to the bone stuff that animators who obviously worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit had seen the influence Thief and the Cobbler and had been influenced how much you could debate but there's definitely a big and it had a really bittersweet like not a bitter ending like you know the film was taken out of his hands mm. was it by Harvey Weinstein or something like that or yeah was it yeah. Just kind really of bashed, dark yeah it, threw a, it was supposed to be like not like you know dialogue less not silent but a dialogue less film I'm right in saying that and so well, no the, only watched, the main character the main characters were like they were silent. literally your Buster Keaton Charlie Chaplin type yeah. pantomime characters but the baddie was Vincent Price wake father <laughs> Happening. Uh, 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 oh, great King Nob, have no fear. Zigzag your grand vizier is here. That's right. That's what I've seen. I'm sure it's on YouTube. There's a about two or three minutes of it. Yeah, there's the recobbled cut. What yeah. happened was when they were taking it off him because he went so over budget, it was his baby and he'd lived with it for 30 years. There's a great documentary you can watch um, about it. And... Uh, and he kind of ended up becoming more famous afterwards as a teacher because he, he put everything he'd learned from the old guys into the animator survival kit, which became the Bible for hand-drawn animation. But at that time, he'd been just going over budget and over schedule. He was so ambitious and such a perfectionist that eventually they took it off him. And just before they took the film off him and kind of butchered it, really, he did a... He did a, a work print. He did a quick work print of it. And then yeah. that has been restored by the Academy. And I was in the Academy a few years ago and they knew what a complete nerd I was for Dick Williams stuff. They brought me down to the basement and they have in their archive all the artwork. Because what happened was the Weinsteins bought it as part yeah. of Miramax mm. to bury it, basically. They bought it and and, and basically buried it. Um, and Ugh. they took all the artwork they took everything and so there's literally lovingly preserved in the academy archives all these boxes and boxes of stuff that was just discovered wow. um by somebody in the miramax vaults or whatever when the miramax was going down you know 
And so it's gorgeous. There's like production notes and sketches and and, and huge paint, like epic stuff, like unbelievably huge stuff, like paintings as big as a room almost because the camera would pull out so far. And we're talking oh, about no. physical wow. artwork. So pre-digital, you literally did everything on sheets of glass so that the camera would seem to be moving through you know, a multiplane wow. camera. So he yeah. was doing stuff on another level and redefining what hand-drawn could be because it was all flat and playing with perspective and playing with optical illusions. And it was very 60s kind of yellow submarine trippy kind of imagery. And it yeah, really yeah. blew my mind because all the Disney stuff is so illustrative and trying, and even Bluth, trying to be like a, you know, like a storybook kind of illustration. But he mm-hmm. was trying, he was really pushing it into a pure kind of, optical illusion art form so yeah anyway sorry i'm raving about the The thing with the thief that i'm just trying to do what they call a masterpiece when you when you master a medium in the old days if you were a master painter then you did your masterpiece well this is an old-fashioned that i've i've mastered this medium at last and i'm going to do a masterpiece i hope if i can ever finish the thing what's driving you to produce this masterpiece quest for excellence it's not an obsession. I, I'm just a throwback to an old craftsman who wants to make a pot right or a painting right. I just saw Rembrandt uh, in the... I was up in, playing in the Edinburgh Festival and uh, went in the art gallery. There's a Rembrandt there that he did when he was first bankrupt. He was about 48 years old. That's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. He didn't do it for money. He, he had no reason to paint that amazing painting. He just wanted to do, to do it. And that's I'm saying. I, I just want to do something good. And if he does get the £7 million he needs to do something good, he's still got to spend three more years and have a total of three million drawings completed before The Cobbler and the Thief hits the cinema screens. I assume Ghibli is an influence... Was it? was an influence on you at some stage as well yeah but not my earliest influence like in college we all loved um princess mononoke that got a release and was dubbed and that was a big deal for us we were already in college and already really passionate and i think princess mononoke was a further confirmation that animation could do more than singing fairy tales and you know talking toys and stuff so princess (laughs) mononoke was a big thing walk the earth an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest when the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out this place will be the richest land in the world now the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess i'm not afraid to die and i would do anything to get the humans out of here and one brave warrior. And then on, and then continuing my animation nerdum with VHS is how I discovered um, Totoro and Kiki. Yeah. And I remember the bus scene in, in Totoro, watching it with my son, and I felt kind of jealous that he was getting to see it as a small child because yeah. I was watching it as a young adult, you know. And printing but, on him. Yeah. So I was delighted to discover them, but I, I came to them much later. That and the, the Hungarian folktales from the Keshkemit studio and the whole world of Eastern European animation and French that animation. That stuff is really creepy. Yeah. yeah some amazing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, I, I just picture everybody in the freezing warehouses making that and just <laughs> depressed. Uh, just thinking... The kids will enjoy this. Okay, I'm lucky. Um, There's some beautiful stuff as well. So all that stuff, I suppose, I encountered 
after I'd become quite dedicated to what I was doing and and has continued to be a huge influence. I mean, as you know, Will, like um, Spirited Away and Totoro were like touchstones for us during Song yeah. of the Sea. And um, even even Mononoke was like, we didn't want to get too close to that with Wolfwalkers because we knew we were in the same area, you know, and um, Tale of Princess Kaguya. Do live action films ever um, creep in as influences? Are there any sort of like where you think... Uh, yeah, that vibe or that that moment, even if it's documentaries or it's anything really, where you think I'd love to capture that or I'd love to draw that. Yeah, well, I I draw film, I draw live action films too. I pause them and kind of reverse storyboard them. I haven't been doing it lately, but I used to do it all the time. Like Wes Anderson really stood out for me as somebody who was like almost like an illustrator or an animator the way he composes movies. They definitely feel almost like animated films. Mm-hmm. So I would pause like the Royal Tenenbaums or the Life Aquatic and just draw it frame by frame. And like in terms of live action movies, like my guilty pleasure or my favorite live action movie is Rocky. (laughs) Excellent. For us as kids, Sylvester Stallone was like Bugs Bunny. Like we'd watch anything he was in. Like it didn't matter. So we'd watch like, you know, Rambo or Over the Top or, you know, Demolition, whatever, as long as Stallone was in it. Cobra. But then as a, again, as a young man in Young Irish Filmmakers, um, I kind of realized that the first Rocky is actually a deadly film. And I felt great. So good. I felt through my life at different times. I really related to Rocky. Like there's been plenty of ups and downs in my, in my journey. And I definitely felt uh, kinship and, and I love, I've analyzed the movie as well. And it's actually a really beautifully constructed and acted and shot movie in its own, you know, ignore all the sequels, but the original Rocky is a really beautiful film in a lot of ways. Definitely. is there a moment from that original Rocky that you absolutely love? Is there a scene from the original Rocky oh, that I you love so much of it? I can quote it to the cows come home. It's a beautiful story, and I think there are some cracking sequels. It, it uh, as we were just saying on, on another podcast, will uh, it jumps the shark, but it manages to also pull back from that. So the Rocky Balboa one where yeah. he has his son, yeah. that's yeah. a great like that's contained great. movie. Yeah. And I thought Creed was great. Creed was uh, great. Yeah, Creed mm-hmm. was great. I think if I'd only ever seen the first Rocky or Creed. But in terms of sequences, there's a few. It made me sob, those films. <laughs> I went to uh, I went to Philadelphia for my 40th birthday a few years ago to run the, you know, the Rocky journey from the Italian market up the steps. Yeah. And um there's areas there that they're still quite depressed, you know, and the and the movie captured that kind of um, feeling. And there's a scene where he's walking away and he's bouncing a ball and there's like a, a railing and they've kind of made it that as the railing is kind of disappearing into the distance, he's getting smaller and he mm. just seems like he's becoming smaller and smaller. It's always really touching. And then there's a moment where Polly gets really... Um, horrible to Adrian and, and she kicks him out and they throw the turkey out in the street and then Rocky just comes and wraps a blanket around her I think that's a really beautiful moment yeah too. it is yeah. a beautiful relationship but maybe the total. most poignant one I think is um, when Mickey comes and after being really kind of shit to Rocky because he thinks Rocky's wasting his life working as an enforcer for the mob um, he comes and hears that Rocky's gotten this chance at a fight and Mickey wants to be his mentor or his trainer, teacher again. And Rocky... I'm going to get choked up just thinking about it again. <laughs> yeah, Rocky kicks him out. Rocky kicks him out. And then he's like... What about your prime? What about my prime, Mick? At least you had a prime. I ain't had no prime. I ain't had nothing. Legs are going, everything is going, no one's getting no nothing. 
guy comes up offers me a fight. Big dude, wanna fight the fight? Yeah, I'll fight the big fight. I wouldn't wanna fight that big fight that was gonna happen to me. I'm gonna get that! I'm gonna get that! And you wanna be ringside and see it? Do you? You wanna help me out? Huh? Do you wanna see me get my face like this? Legs ain't working, nothing's working. They go, go on, fight the chair. Yeah, I'll fight him. And then um, we see from a really long shot, really far away, Mickey going down the street and then Rocky coming down the steps after him and catching oh. up to him. It's so gorgeous. It's beautiful. <laughs> it really is. It, it, no idea the... if it's influenced my work or anything, but I just love it as a movie. I suppose it's emotion. You want to capture emotion. But no, that's absolutely gorgeous. It really is. Um, but I want to ask you, Tom, like, you know, because there's loads, loads and loads I want to cover because I was actually... I. I want to cover, actually, I want to bring it up because you brought up Totoro, right? But you know what I watched at the weekend? I watched Grave of the Fireflies oh, for the yeah. first time in 20 Amazing, years. Right. The mad thing is that, Kevin, you might notice, but My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies were both made by Studio Ghibli. And both, they... Oh, I know that. But you did you know that they released <laughs> both films on the same fucking weekend? Just for the crack. Really? <laughs> Just for the crack. Like, Jesus Christ. What? Like, a as a business punch. strategy. Well, as a business strategy, you think, yo, we'll just put one up against the other and see which out competes. They were competing against each other, like, you know? It was I thought they played together, no? Did they play against each other? Maybe they did play together. I thought you could watch one and the other, and I thought they were always an odd couple, like, I mean. Like, what about a tonal shift? Like, Jesus Christ. Like, I was in bits at the weekend watching Grave of the Fireflies. And, um... But like then to kind of, but then they're kind of similar in their own way as well. Like you know, and like you know the the fact that the the kids, you know, they both feature kid protagonists with you know parents who are not there. Um, but my God, the world that they're experiencing is you know so totally, totally different. But again, it's the humanity. What I love about the Ghibli films, and actually it's Takahata films. Uh, Isao mm-hmm. Takahata made Grave of the Fireflies and. Um, Kaguya, uh, only Kaguya yesterday. Yeah, uh, my, my neighbor Toby, the Amadas, the Amadas. Yeah. I love that. He, I find, is the one is who has the most humanity in his films. Like you know, his films have capture a kind of um, I know just that there's a, there's a real tenderness to the way he treats mm. his characters, and uh, I I just and he is much more a writer than an animator. You know, like he could draw, but he wasn't the draftsman that Miyazaki was. Right, and uh, I think he's a good example of yeah, someone who's working in the animation medium and seeing everything it can do because he's not an animator per se. You know, wow, because that was the funny thing. I was looking at uh, all the all I think of his films, and I went the only standout kind of like scene from. Takahata's films compared to Miyazaki is in um, uh, Kaguya, Princess Tale of Princess Kaguya is the charcoal, the charcoal explosion moment and that's absolutely amazing Big influence, yeah Oh man, we were actually in the same screening we saw that in the same screening with Takahata himself, which was mad to think like, you know uh, over in Toronto, which is just crazy, like you know. I always say that was why uh, we got really brave with Wolfwalkers visually because it was like doing all these interviews in Toronto, and Takahata was doing interviews at the same time, and we were both saying like, "Oh yeah, hand-drawn animation is an expressive medium; it can do things that live action can't do." But then when I saw what he was doing with Kaguya, I was like, "Oh my God, he's kicking my ass in terms of like <laughs> how far he's pushing the medium," you know. In his eighties, 
in his yeah, 80s. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. amazing stuff. And yeah. if there's an amazing documentary that I actually saw, that, that's Time in Toronto as well. If you have any interest in Studio Ghibli, mm. it's, is it the one, um, The Kingdom of Dreams Kingdom and of Madness? Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, yeah. It's an amazing documentary. Have you, seen, you ever heard of it, Kevin? No. What's the one where um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a moment where an animator is presenting, I think, something for a video game to him in a conference oh, room? Oh, yeah. And they were using he, AI to animate. Oh, That's the Miyazaki, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry, Miyazaki. Well, Miyazaki um, could be quite cruel, I imagine. He comes yeah. across as someone who is. Oh, just, Jesus. He yeah. demolished that guy. Doesn't take shit, yeah. Yeah. It feels <laughs> like. Oh, they were making. Uh, using AI to kind of. It's like the AI is trying to figure out how to walk. And because we anthropomorph things very naturally, it looks kind of cruel at these, like creatures are kind of lumbering like zombies or stuff like that and he's just like you have created an effect to nature or something <laughs> like that it's, like, oh, Jesus it's crushing him, yeah. <laughs> this kid's just slaved for months and months on this uh, on this thing oh my god so tom do you have like a favorite animated scene that you just go i adore that scene and why uh, i think so- I think that's really cruel, right? And I've spoken a lot about Nim and the Thief and the Cobbler, but I suppose the bus scene in Totoro is one that I would just show anyone and you wouldn't need to have any interest whatsoever in animation. And I think it's a magical moment when the kids are waiting for the bus and the Totoro's there with them and they're at night and they look at the little shrine and it starts to rain. Ah, wait. I think that's a sequence, a hand-drawn animated sequence that does everything. You know, it has the magic of what's possible with the medium and the craft is so beautiful and the timing and pacing of it is so gorgeous and so well-drawn. And yeah, I think that would be the one I'd have to pick now. Yeah, that you caught me on the hop, yeah. (laughs) Good. That would be my pick too. I think for me again, it's the humanity. I love the humanity and the moments and the gestures where there, there's two girls are waiting for a, waiting for a bus to go, and uh, this strange creature Totoro just joins the bus stop with her. And but it's the humanity of sharing an umbrella. I don't know. There's a verisimilitude to it that you know you, you feel the you feel the space is real, and it's more. I think that's the the beauty of kind of like amazing hand-drawn animated stuff, the stuff that Dick Williams did and the stuff that the Studio Ghibli's and the stuff that you're doing in Character in Saloon as well, is that you feel they're, they're not, they're not going to, they're going to be timeless. Yeah, that's the hope. We're going to watch them yeah. in a hundred years time and you're going to go, wow, that's still... I wonder where we'll be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope my head's in a jar. <laughs> and I'd say for me, as I said about Akira, I'm with Miyazaki. It would probably be the big abomination at the end with Tetsuo turning into a oh, that big yeah. tentacle. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so, can I ask you, Tom? I bet you, he loved it. <laughs> how did it, you know the little trail lights? You know the little kind of like you know brake trail lights they had in those uh, in Akira. You know the oh, way the bikes yeah, used. How did they do that? guess they must have hand animated them and shot them on a lower exposure like they would have run the film through twice because that was all on cells that wasn't computer effects so i right. guess they would have had to hand draw those trails 
uh, oh my God. and Tron then shoot them. Yeah, and then shoot them twice. Like shoot them with a mask and then shoot them again at low exposure. Yeah, it's so I cool. guess. It, it creates a kind of a kinetic feel. You it's kind amazing. of amazing. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's also that holographic one. thing that in the mm. ship, the which is spiraling around, and it it feels like it's it's that movie is computer amazing. generated, and it's you know the movie is kind of an odd story because it's a truncated version of a much longer manga that he drew and wrote, and those guys just blow my mind. Like he drew and wrote this really long, really complex, beautifully created um, comic. And then made a movie of it. It's like, yeah. Jesus. Dedication. Wow. A lot of work. A lot oh of work. Oh, my God. That is amazing. Wow. Well, I am <laughs> delighted. Wow. I am delighted that I put a gamble. I put all my chips on Tom Moore to actually provide all the content and research for this episode. And, Tom, you paid off. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh yeah well i'm gonna spin the wheel am i i always wanted to do something like this we've sent tom the, the wheel and he's gonna oh, it was mad when they were delivering it earlier i was wondering what where all the light bulbs went but they had it all set up and they left it was covid compliant of course they had masks on and all and when they set up the neighbors were complaining a bit about all the the lights and the noise of it and all but yeah. it's here now it's it's worth it was well worth the effort guys i'm gonna spin it okay you're very welcome there we go. <laughs> that was a big spin. Oh, yeah. coming off. It's going to be spinning for the next two yeah, minutes. Round and round and round it goes. We're playing oh. nobody knows. You tell us what I sort of have a feeling. Best night in the big city. Best one night in the big city scene. Oh, wow. There we go. <laughs> That's amazing. Man, Tom. We're going oh, to actually gosh. have to get repair people and uh, fix what Are you did. Well, I gave it yeah. a big spin, but I think the guys are, oh, yeah, they're coming in to take it away now. That was your winning streak moment. That'll that be uh, Huey, Louie and Dewey. <laughs> Thanks, lads. <laughs> so, um, Kevin, next week you have best uh, one night in the big city. Um, That's right. But before we go, we should say, uh, Tom, where can people find you online if they want to uh, um, follow you? Or, yeah, better off not following me online. <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just better that I remain. Can I also say that the same goes for me? <laughs> Well, honestly, my Twitter is is mostly uh, animal rights and vegan ranting, and it's sprinkled with some animation information. Yeah. But I'm on Twitter, and my Instagram, you can see a lot of my uh, Instagram. Oh God, what am I? Uh, you'll find me on Instagram. Tom um, the bomb. Look Tom, Tom the bomb. The bomb. On and that's mostly just life drawing and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, don't, you know, never meet your heroes. Don't be disappointed when you see. I'm Tom ninety seven sixty nine on Instagram, and I and I do post a lot of little behind the scenes 69. things. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Ninety seven sixty nine, and I post a lot of little. You can see some storyboards from the early days of Song of the Sea there, and. You know, pictures of the studio back in the in the early two thousands when you were babies. Yes, and plenty of nudie pictures of of uh, life drawn models. So there you go. Hold on, sorry guys, sorry. I'm just getting checking out my Tom's Instagram. Oh, <laughs> Jessica Rabbit Top. Take <laughs> <laughs> for Jessica. Uh, she's not bad. She's just drawing camera money for me. The caramel bunny. I wonder was that Dick Williams. That's a really good question. But like Tom, and this- you can follow us under oh, yeah. at Best Bits Pod, and uh, yeah, back next week. 
Best Bits podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. Many bits. Another new episode. Of this Patreon podcast. Exclusive. The best bits podcast with Will and Kevin, how are you? Hi, honey. How are you? Oh, you know, I've got this. I've got my corn sorted out. I went to the Chiraptus the other day and uh, she Your said... corn? Uh, my corns. Did you, ever get, did you ever get corns? No. Did you know what a corn is? Yeah, it's a bunion on your foot, isn't it? Yeah, like in between your toes and stuff like that. Do you, do you not wear any shoes like around the house you walk no, barefoot? No, I, I wear... No, it's the opposite. GA shorts. It's the opposite. I wear incredibly tight shoes. Like those Chinese women oh. who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of this yeah. last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a mini bits episode where we get people disgusted. Squally, it's episode 73 of the mini bits. <laughs> I'm Kevin, you're Will. This is yeah. our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. Yeah. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to goad people into joining up every single episode and then every so often it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode and yeah. I'm like what did we how did we say it what did we say on that episode that's different <laughs> to the other 270 episodes maybe it didn't sound as desperate maybe we said don't jo-. maybe reverse psychology that's how we should do it reverse psychology don't join up to our patron don't it's <laughs> You don't des- Everybody cancel. You, you don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look of you. you. We, don't, we don't need anybody. <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people, we, we did, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it on mic, especially so early. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh, how do you think yeah. I, how do you think I did? I, I I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once. So I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But, you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying, Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with, did they do the examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And, and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They were, they were profiled in the Guardian as well. Yeah. But we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. we don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're, 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 you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains from all his Patreon dash. I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think yeah. my uh, 
undertones suit more silver. But, uh, yeah. I just want to die. Those I, are my Prince Albert. Uh, <laughs> your hat? <laughs> yeah. I want Speaking of, of the, which. I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth. That's all I want. So I can go bing whenever I'm on a call. Oh, uh, yeah. Bing. I usually just, you know, wink and like glitch. Yeah. Starlight twinkle. <laughs> Speaking of which, I interrupted you. What, what, we, what, did, what did you want to speak of, which? Start the timer. Oh, I forgot. You may as well. Start the timer. They, all, all these lucky losers are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after. Yeah. We, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix forward to watching thing. that. Very okay. Okay. I'll save my thoughts. And right. um, what else did I see? I made notes, but sure. It doesn't really matter. I think I saw that. And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker 2 trailer came out today. I saw it. Yes. I watched that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago. Yeah, it's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So, look, hey, listen. Uh, I actually, what it, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch The Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show. The Joker episodes. Oh yeah, that's going to be just to fill me in, like on the lore. Get up to speed. Get you right up to speed. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be there going, where, where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? Where, where are they going to show up? And like, it's a a weird time though, where we have the Penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the Penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which isn't. its own universe entirely. Mm. And then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many IP. But like it's this, just everywhere. What, well, what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the, the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors. And there would be totally different riffs on it and stuff. Oh, oh this is the thing. Kevin, so I'm only catching up on this. You mentioned it to me on a on a pod, on a podcast. What was it on one of those? Uh, it was the last. Show? It was the last mini bits. Uh, you, you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently. And have you started noticing it though? Only, only, only with people trying to raise you. That's the only type, only where place where I've noticed people. No, people under sort of trying to every, raise you. Oh my god! Oh my god! I could start posting though, like, um, tweets, comments, TikToks. Uh, articles, anything insane is everywhere. This is insane. That's insane. It's insane. There was a festival just going on about this insane lineup. I was okay. like, oh, it's a mentally ill lineup. Okay, <laughs> it's just it's it's everywhere. And the other, th- do you know, the other thing that's also bothering me lately. Wow. wow. And this has been bothering me for years and years and years. It used to be that everyone used to misspell definitely. They'd go defiantly. Okay. Oh, it's defiantly whatever. It would just they're morons. But no. <laughs> I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word, A-L-O-T, a lot. Where has, where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? 
It's the same way that people will write every time as one word. What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, <laughs> but I can't get it right. It's like the you I. because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had to an, use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you oh, a compliment. That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment. I, I wrote that to you. But you did. And I went to try and find it because I was I found myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that, yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment, I went, okay, what did Kevin say again about compliment? There's an I and the E. What did he say? So I went searching for it and I found it, I think. And I went, oh, the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you it's a compliment. It's insane how little you can retain information. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, let's start talking about what we watched. Come on. Did you start the timer? Yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. You know, I have to put in the sound effect. I have to. I have to line oh. up all my sound effects. When you said start I have the timer, like, I have a whole it's... fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Here. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Where's my fucking? What? Where's my ding dang ding? <laughs> here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right. 